have a situation like we have today where our attendance is way down because of weather. I think of a joke I heard at one time, and it was about a young preacher gets called to a little country church, and he shows up for his first day to preach. He waits. Only one man comes in, sits down in the pew. So he struggles. What do I do? Do I, do I preach the sermon I prepared, or do I kind of tone it down some since there's just one person here? And he kind of felt like he needed to go ahead and, and just give it all he's got and preach the sermon. So that's what he did. Well, he gets through to the end of the sermon, and he can't help but asking the one man as he's leaving uh, about his dilemma and kind of what he thought. And like so many of them do, the, the farmer just kind of slowly said, well, son, when I'm out in the field and only one cow shows up to feed, I don't give them the whole bale of hay. So... But you're going to get the whole bale of hay today. You've got a word from God's word. So I'm not going to let that stop me. We do appreciate that you're watching by live stream. And we, we do love that we have this opportunity to really send our service and our word of God out through the nation, through the world. We're in Matthew chapter 25. It's the parable of the talents. Read along with me, starting at verse 14, again it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not gathered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvested where I have not sown and gathered where I have not gathered seed. Well then... You should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have at least received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Join me in prayer. 
Dear precious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to your word, to your message today, that we would hear you speaking to us as you speak to each of us individually about what you're calling us uniquely to do. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came, paid the price, died on the cross for us, and that we have eternal life. Father, we thank you that we can meet in a comfortable place when the weather is cold and snowy outside. We thank you for like-minded believers and friends that we can have fellowship with and worship you together. All these things, Lord, are good and perfect gifts that come from you above, and we give you praise and glory for that and for Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Over this month, we've been looking at expanding our vision, developing a great faith. God talked about a, a great faith. He, he said to his people one time, O ye of little faith, God wants us to have a great faith. And we've been talking about that. And we started with the first Sunday in January about what to do with the past. And we, we talked about how there's things in the past we need to leave behind. We don't need to let it weigh us down. We don't need to let it prevent us from living in the future. But there are lessons that we need to remember from the past. So we talked about hold on to the past, but don't let it hold on to you. Then our next sermon on the 8th was talking about what a great, mighty God we have. A God who spoke and the world came into existence. Uh, a God that the scripture says sustains everything by his hand, by his power. And it is so interesting as our uh, astronomers are sending out new and more powerful telescopes out past our solar system, just the pictures we're getting back of God's creation and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more wondrous. Then last week we talked about vision and we, we talked about Abraham and how he was hyper-focused on one problem in his life that God had promised he was going to take care of and how God assured him that he was going to make a nation out of Abraham and God believed Abraham, and later we know the story that God did give him Isaac, and especially with Isaac and Ishmael, Abraham's seed filled the land and are more numerous than the stars of the sky. Then we talked about how Jesus has a great vision for people to come and know the lost, to come and know the Lord that are lost, and, and how the fields are white for harvest, and and how he tells us to go out, and he gives us a great mission. He gives all of our churches, small, big, and, 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 and large, and medium, to evangelize the whole world. He gives us that great task that is bigger than we can think, we can imagine, but he empowers us to do that. He gives a great vision. Today we're talking about greater stewardship. And that's what this passage, this parable we talked about is, is teaching. It's teaching stewardship. And stewardship is that 
job of supervising or taking care of something such as an organization or property. As we become Christians, as we grow as Christians, we come to read God's Word, to understand God's Word, and those verses that teach us that everything belongs to God, that it's all His. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof is your scripture in today's verses. And it turns out we don't own what we have God makes us a steward over those things. He gives us a responsibility to care for His things, His stuff, His property, all that He has, even His people. And so in this passage, in this parable we read today, we see three things. One, the master assigns responsibility according to the servant's ability. To one, he knew he could entrust five talents. To another, he knew he had the ability to entrust two talents. To the other one, he just gave them one. And true to form, the one with five doubled what he had. The one with two doubled what he had. And the one with one proved that he was not a good steward. He was not a good manager as he just hid it in the ground. And with inflation, it actually lost value instead of getting what the bank would give, as the master said. That talent is a measure of gold or coins. And they were given these items of wealth to care for while the master was gone. And then I think it's very poignant that when Jesus is given this parable, that he makes the point that the master was gone for a long time. It wasn't just a short journey. And that's important because when it's a short time, when we know the boss is just going to be gone away for an hour, we'll probably stay to the job and and really be diligent. But if the boss is going to be on vacation for two or three weeks, things may start slacking down in the office or on the workforce. It's just human nature. And so it's very tempting when... The boss, the Lord, the master is going to be gone for a long time that we kind of become slack in our responsibilities. But the verse, the parable points out that the master did return and he held them accountable for what he had charged them to do. And we can take from that, that promise, that knowledge we have from Jesus that he's going to return. He ascended to heaven. He's there preparing a place for us. The Holy Spirit is with us, empowering us. But there is coming that day when Jesus is going to return. And so we see these lessons. The Master, of course, represents Jesus. The servants, His followers. There are a lot of verses here, and I want to go through them quickly, and I hope you can keep up. The first one is John 15.15. And it says to us, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. When we become Christ followers, when we accept him as our Lord and Savior, he considers us a friend. He includes us in what he's doing. The next verse is in John 14, 16, and 17. Where Jesus is saying, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate 
to help you and be with you forever. You can think of that advocate as one who is standing alongside. Another word is paraclete. means in Greek, one who goes alongside. And he is, is speaking to the Father on our behalf, saying, this is one of your children. This is one of your followers. He's interceding for us, letting us know that. So we have that advocate to be with us forever. And it goes on, 17, the Spirit of Truth is that advocate, the Holy Spirit. The world can't accept Him because it doesn't see Him or know Him. But you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. When we accept Christ as our Savior, that Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. And He is actually a seal of our salvation, sealing us as a child of God that cannot be changed. Then we go to the end of the New Testament to Revelation chapter 20 when Jesus says, Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from His presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. There is coming that day when Christ is going to return, when we will be held accountable for what He has charged us with, charged us individually, and charged us corporately. He's a loving God. He empowers us. He, he gives us what we need. He's indwelt us with the Holy Spirit that gives us wisdom, knowledge, and power. Gives us strength beyond our strength to do the task He has given us. There are other verses. As we grow as Christ's fathers, as followers, we learn and we realize that truth that all things are God's. Psalm 24.1 is that verse I quoted, The earth is the Lord, and everything in it, and all who live in it. Psalm 50.10, For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. And then 50.12, God is saying, If I were hungry, I'm not going to tell you. I don't need you to feed me, for the world is mine and all that is in it. And even ourselves in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul writes this, Do you not know that you are not your own? Your bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That price, of course, was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. His, his sacrifice on your behalf. His dying on your behalf. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus did that death for you and me, for all of us. And in that, He purchased us by His death. We are His. He is our Lord. And that Lord means one who rules over us, who tells us what we should do. These verses point out that everything 
that is was created by God, and it is His. For our time on earth, He entrusts us to care for His creation. He expects us to multiply what He gives us. This has been His design from the very beginning. Go all the way back to Genesis 2.15 when God created Adam and He placed him in the garden. One of the things God did was He had the animals come by and Adam named them. But then He says in verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And this was before the fall. This was not a punishment. Afterwards, they were driven from the, car, from the garden and they had to till the ground and weeds came and made it hard. But this is when things were perfect and God gave Adam that job of caring for the garden. So it wasn't a punishment. It was a privilege to be able to serve the Lord Almighty. Looking at what Jesus said, in Matthew 22, 22, we have the Pharisees coming to Jesus again, trying to tra trap Him, wanting Him to say, don't support the Roman government because then they could go to the Romans and say, this man's an insurrectionist. You need to deal with him. But instead, in verse 21, Jesus says, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and render or give to God what is God's. They had produced a coin and showed it to Jesus. And, and Jesus said, whose face is on that coin? They said, Caesar. And that's what he said. We'll give it to Caesar. So in a way, Jesus stepped on our feet a couple of times here. in that verse, because he said, one, pay your taxes. Something none of us really enjoy doing. But he also reminded us that we are to give to God what God has given and to take care of it. Paul taught about giving, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one of us should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And you may have heard that the Greek there is more than cheerful. It really means and points to hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver, a person who loves giving to God, giving back to God that portion that He requires of us, excuse me, that He gives to us. And we give it back with hilarity because we know if we have that faith, if we've grown in faith, that God's going to multiply it. He's going to take it and make it more than it is, and it's going to come back and we will receive ever more blessings. So these are some of the uh, uh, different verses that establish who God is, that He is the Creator, He is the owner, and Jesus teaching that we are to give back to God what is God's, and Paul encouraging us to be a cheerful giver. That is the plan. And I know that some people believe the Old Testament doesn't have any bearing on us today. They think it doesn't apply and I agree that we are no longer under the law of Moses. 
as Gentiles, we never would have been really under the law of Moses. That was the law for the Hebrew people. We are under the law of grace through Jesus Christ. But the Old Testament is valuable. It teaches us who God is. The Apostle Paul wrote, For all Scripture is given for reproof and instruction and building up of the saints. And they had, about all they had when Paul was writing was the Old Testament. The New Testament had not been written yet, had not been codified. Paul was writing it as we speak, as he spoke. And so we have that example. The Bible teaches us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. And so what we learn of Him from the Bible, Old or New Testament, is valid today, is always true. And so with that understanding, we need to look at what God says about what His attitude is when we do not give to Him that portion of what He has given us. What does God say His attitude about that is? And it's in those famous verses in Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Here God says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you descendants of Jacob are not destroyed. He had every reason to destroy them. They continued to go against his law, to go against his will, to disobey him, to follow other gods, but they were his people. And he had promised to protect them and keep them. So because he doesn't change, they weren't destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees. You have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Then he challenges them more. He says, will a mere mortal rob God? Who would have that audacity? Who would be so cheeky as to rob God? He said, but you robbed me. They still don't get it. How are we robbing you? He said, in tithes and offerings. In other words, they weren't giving them. So he said, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Then he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me, says the Lord Almighty. He wants us to test him because he knows what he's going to do. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I will prevent pest from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe says the Lord Almighty you see we can have a and some people do a a gospel a prosperity gospel it's called that you give to God God's going to give you that right back and God does give and bless but in the scripture he points out that there are many ways for his blessing to occur He can make sure that the pests don't come and eat up the flock so you have a bountiful crop and you make money from that and you can feed your family. He makes sure that 
other things don't happen that keep you from being successful. And God says, test him in that. And then see if he will not pour out those blessings and bless you so much that those around you know that you have been blessed by God. That's Malachi. I believe the tithe is what God expects. Throughout the Old Testament, the tithe was received. In Genesis 14, Abraham gave the priest Melchizedek a tithe in worship. A tithe, of course, means 10%. Later, hundreds of years later, the Israelites had once again turned away from God. They'd been carried into exile. And you know the story of Nehemiah. Cyrus the king allows them to come back. He allows Nehemiah to build the walls of Jerusalem to restore the city. And at the end of the book of Nehemiah, along with the priest Ezra, they challenge the people to return to the word of God. As they got the city built, as they became safe, Ezra started reading from the scrolls the law of God. And as the people heard it, they became convicted because they knew they were not doing what God had decreed for them to do. And in that passage, it goes on, and they vow several things before God. They vow to quit giving their children in marriage to people of a pagan religion. That was against God's will. And they vowed to restore the offerings to the temple. And they did that for a while. Then they fell off again. But God gives us that story in Nehemiah to return. But I don't want us to get hung up on that about the tide. That's not the most critical thing I think we need to get from that. We can quibble about that. But we definitely have the teaching that we are to give to God first and then take care of other responsibilities. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 says, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. And he gives another promise. Do that, so shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. When you obey God, when you honor him by obeying him in this manner he blesses back he gives back over and over God's people were taught to bring God the first of their crops the first of their flocks the very best even to dedicate their firstborn son to God God expects to be placed first in your economy of life and to be given the best, not the leftovers. Too often what we do, if there's something left over, we, we grudgingly will give a little bit to God. It reminds me of the little boy who was going to church and he was given two nickels. And the mom told him, one is for you, one's for God. So when you get to church, you put God's in the plate and you can have the other one. Well, he's holding them in his hands, and as he walks up the step, one nickel falls. 
He said, whoops, there goes your nickel, God. That's too often our attitude. But God demands that first. But he also promises to bless when we do that. But it is true in the New Testament in Jesus' teaching and later that the tithe is not specifically mentioned. I'll remind you that Jesus often quoted the Old Testament. He referred to it. He taught from it. So he must have thought they were important. And then Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Do not, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's pretty black and white to me. That's pretty definite of what the Lord is saying. The King James says, not a jot or tittle. Those were grammatical marks in the Hebrew writing. And Jesus saying, nothing's eliminated until that end time that he comes back and sets it all right. Jesus fulfilled the law. The law was that if you sinned, if you committed sin, you were to die for that sin. Through the Old Testament, God gave them a pattern of worship where they would sacrifice an animal and that was to figuratively take their sins upon that animal, and then that animal died, but it's representing how death was required for sinning. Jesus Christ was that final sacrificial lamb. When he took our sins upon him and he died, and in that he fulfilled that requirement of the law that death must be paid for sin. As we believe in him, our sin is covered and we no longer die for that. So we're not excused from giving. Jesus said in the previous passage, render to God what is God's. And Paul teaches us to give what we decide cheerfully. Where should we bring our tithes and offering? Again, the passages in Malachi and Nehemiah show this. Malachi says, bring ye all the tithes, your offerings, into the storehouse. The storehouse was the temple. The storehouse is the church. And that means more to them back then because they would actually, sometimes the offerings were grain offerings or animal offerings, not just uh, talents or money. And that was used for the priest to have food to eat or to give to others. And so it was a storehouse in that sense. In Nehemiah, as I referred in those last chapters, 9, 10, at the end, there's an order there that they give and it came to the temple. And then from that gift to the temple, a portion was given to the Levites, the priests, for their income and to care for them. And so, again, the Bible teaches us the storehouse, the temple, the local church is where it should come. 
Doesn't mean you don't give more elsewhere. Doesn't, doesn't restrict you from that. Here at Campbellsburg Baptist Church, as most churches do, we have a unified budget. And what that means is once a year we sit down as a church, finance committee, deacons in our case, pull together a budget. We apportion what we need to meet the bills, what we need for ministry. We present that to the church. The church has the opportunity to adjust that. But then we vote on it as a body and that becomes our budget. It's a unified budget to do the ministry and meet the needs of the church. From that, as I shared last week, in order to fulfill the Great Commission, obey God, a portion of that is given to our state offices. A portion of that goes to our national offices so that the ministry is complete. We cooperate together. We Christians at each church cooperate to support our church and ministries. Each church in our area cooperates together to support Kentucky ministry. Each church in the United States cooperates together we're a team accomplishing that. So what is the result when we give faithfully? Again, Matthew 3, 10 and 12. God promises repeatedly to bless our gifts and reward us with even more for our faithful giving. Again, Malachi 3, 10 and 12. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out such a blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. And then Jesus in Luke says, Luke 6.38, Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We all know we go to the store and we buy something. Maybe we buy a package of oatmeal. And usually in some small print on that, it tells us contents may have settled in shipping. In other words, don't expect that container to be full. But we know that's real. When they blow it in there, it's kind of puffed up and as it settles. So we, we understand that. The way the ladies back in this time used to go to the market very often, they would have an apron on. And when they went to buy grain, they would hold that apron up and the seller would pour the grain into their apron. And of course, they want to get the most in there, so they would kind of wiggle it and shake it so it would settle so the seller can put a little more in. And they get it full, packed down, and pressed of air. And that's what God's saying he'll do for us as we trust him, as we obey him, as we do what he said. Those are the words of Jesus. It will be shaken together, running over, and poured into our lap. And the measure of that will be according to our measure to God. So the creator of all things and our redeemer, Jesus says that we are to give to him and trust that he will give back to us from his abundance. So when we get down to it, giving is an act of faith. Faith is the most important aspect of, to God. That's what he desires the most from us. 
Faith in him for salvation, faith in him to help us in our needs, and faith in him to provide those needs. So what do we do if we do not already have the practice of tithing or giving back to God? I thought about this. It's, it, it's easy to take a dogmatic approach and say, just do it. But in, in thinking, and I need to share with you, this is not a scripture I can point you to to say this is how God says what I'm going to present to you. But I do believe it follows the desires of God and what he would have. God desires faith. That's the most important thing he's seeking in you. He doesn't need our income. He already owns a cattle on a thousand hills. So that's not the point. The point is that we would grow in faith, that we would trust him and learn that we can trust him, and then our faith grow and grow. We have that verse from Hebrews eleven six: without faith it's impossible to please God. And so that's what God desires. So how do we start out? What do we do if we don't have that habit? Well, you start by confessing and repenting. Every time we go before God, that's the first step, whatever it is in our life. We have to acknowledge that we've fallen short. First John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We can go to our Father that way, knowing he will bless us. So we start with confession and repentance. And then the next thing is we commit to faithfully give to God from what we have, our finances, our time, our strength. And then I believe, and this is where the verses of Paul comes in, the verses of Jesus, where it doesn't specify an amount. God's wanting to tell you what he wants from you. He's wanting to talk to you. He's wanting to teach you. So when you come to that place in your life and you say, Lord, I I need to get this faith habit in my life, where do you start? Start by confession and repentance, and then you start by saying, God, what do you want me to do? And God will tell you an amount. He'll tell you a step to take. And he knows your needs. He knows where you are. He knows whether you can do five talents, two talents, or one talents. And he will tell you according to your level of faith. The, the, the challenge is when he tells you that, whatever it is, that you do it faithfully. That you do what he says consistently, constantly. That you show that you will do what he's told you to do. And it's going to be a sacrifice. It it, it doesn't mean anything if God tells you to do something that's easy. It doesn't require faith. It doesn't require sacrifice. And so it will be a sacrifice. It will be a little bit of a struggle there because God is growing your faith. In doing that, in thinking, we examine our spending. We look at our checkbook, our bank account. What are we spending money on? And we pray for leadership. Lord, speak to us. Open my heart. Open my mind, Lord, that I can hear you. 
Speak to me clearly. That's a prayer I often say to people. I pray that God would speak clearly to you. That's a blessing. So we do that. And as we do that, we may see things that we don't need to be paying for. We may see things that we can eliminate God expects us to manage our financial obligations. We're not supposed to welch on a debt. The Bible teaches us be faithful. Parents, we're supposed to take care of our children. Husbands, dads, we're supposed to take care of our wife. It's wrong if we make them suffer for our sacrifice. That's not in God's will. And so we listen to Him. It may be that instead of paying $10 for a meal from a fast food restaurant, if you can find it for that, that you do without. Take something from home. Find better ways to manage your budget. You see, it's a two-part thing. One of it is obeying God. Whatever He says to do, you do, and you make it the first thing. The other is you start becoming a better steward of what He's given you. You start managing that better. And as you do this better and it frees up, then God's going to say, okay, now increase until your faith keeps growing and growing. So you will be tested. Things will go wrong. Unexpected expenses will arise. Count on it. The test is, will you stay faithful to what God has said to do? And don't forget... We have an enemy that seeks to prevent us from obeying God, seeks to prevent us from growing in faith, seeks to prevent us from receiving his blessings. And so there is all these challenges. But listen to God. Hear what he says. Obey. And he promises multiple times I've read for you that he will pour out abundant blessings. So as you follow God, give as you're directed sacrificially, you'll experience that provision in his life. And that action by him will increase your faith. And you'll see him care for you and you'll want to trust him even more. And you'll grow in the knowledge and wisdom of God. You'll grow in faith. And like he said in that parable, To the one who has, more will be given. And that doesn't just mean more abundance. It means more responsibility. Because God's learning, He can trust you. And that's so very important. He has these things He wants us to do, and He needs to know He can trust us. When He comes to us and says, I want you to do this, He needs to know He can trust us. So we grow in faith. God learns we're faithful. And he blesses us even more by working even more through our lives. Not the easiest sermon to hear. Not the easiest sermon to deliver. But as I've tried to line out, fresh from God's word, that that's what he wants. That's what he says. And we as Christians who have called upon his name need to obey. 
I heard a speaker not too long back, because we read that passage, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We all want to hear that. But this, this speaker came out, and he said, how can you expect a well done if you haven't done well? We kind of want to do our own thing, but still get the well done. And God doesn't work that way. So I challenge you as you meditate before God, as you who are listening, think about these words, and I pray you will think about them, that you'll honestly say, God, what is it? Where am I robbing you? How am I not honoring you? I admit I've not done that, and I want to follow you faithfully. And you listen to what he says, and you do your best to do it. And when you fail tomorrow, you say, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm going to do better next day. You pick yourself up continually serving him because he is a great and mighty God. He's done more for you than you could ask or know about or think. He's got more he wants to do for you as you'll trust him with every aspect of your life.